Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm thrilled to welcome Jane Miles, VP of Clinical Trial Innovation at CureBase. Thanks for joining us today, Jane. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really curious and excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming. So tell us about the career path that brought you to CureBase. Oh, it's, it's winding. Um, okay, so let's just frame. A lot of people say, so what was your plan? It's like, didn't have one. But actually was really lucky to have a dad who just kept exploring where his curiosity took him. So he studied forestry, he studied history, he studied philosophy. He ended up being um, an IT programmer on satellite technology Mm. and that just set me up to say go do what makes you curious and dig Um, so I I entered university and I was actually really conflicted grace because I wasn't sure whether to study music or science I was literally pulled in two directions um had a great music teacher who coached me she said, you're more likely to be able to come back to music if you don't love science than to go the other direction. So oh, go true, first. true. And then um, I, I dove in deep. It was not easy. <laughs> uh, my class started with about 700 people, about 45 graduated. Um And we were, some of them went off to do other things, of course, but the field, the discipline was life science. And by the time I got to third and fourth year, I was starting to do the stuff that really got me excited with biochemistry. In fourth year, pharmacology hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh, this is what this is all for. Mm. So I'm going to speed up. But eventually I ended up doing analytical chemistry in the petro... um, petrochemical industry and realized I liked the analytical chemistry, but not the applications. So ended up doing all sorts of cool analytical chemistry for Lily, actually. But what was more important was the frame where we were doing it, because I was in a group, an experiment on self-directed work teams. 
So while we had a manager, the the rule of law was you go there when you just can't resolve the conflict or you have something that you need that you like you need a new instrument or whatever. And that really was fascinating because it set me up to understand conflict, conflict resolution, how to actually set really aspirational goals and achieve them, and how to speak about the things that are hard. Because in a self-directed work team, if you didn't, that was going to crash and burn. True. I'll keep going. So then I got to do a whole lot of interesting stuff, since I seem to like this, on total quality management and training different work teams on how to apply the principles of total quality management and problem solving. Now that's pretty far away from pharmacology, right? But at their core, both of those disciplines are trying to solve problems. And what was really fascinating was I realized I loved helping people see new ways to solve problems. And I could carry those tools with me throughout whatever I did. I finally, finally made it into clinical research. It had been a journey. I had been seeking opportunities, got there and realized, oh my gosh, there's there's so much detail in here. This is not really what I've been working on with these big concepts. So I had to shift my thinking a lot. But again, we set up a self-directed work team. We had major goals, really hard to achieve, lots of stress. But I, I kind of got in love with the molecules and the mission of figuring out does the molecule do what we hope it does with the right risk benefit profile. So I just kept doing that. I did it in big pharma US based and I did it in big pharma European based and I did it in a niche CRO. Then I did it in a small startup biotech, all kinds of therapeutic areas, all kinds of different molecules all kinds of different teams and problems within them. And, you know, those first and fundamental tools like the self-directed work team environment and the total quality management frame of problem solving were golden to me. Mm. Like, so what's the lesson there? Don't say no. Like, I've always been the person who thought I'd be more regretful to think I didn't try something that scared me than to think I missed an opportunity to grow. Mm, That's powerful. That's powerful. So you've been a leader in the clinical research community for many years Mm -hmm. with poster presentations at most of the industry shows we know and love. And and, as you look at the industry's evolution, where do you see the greatest improvements and the areas in need of more focus in the coming years, particularly in decentralized clinical trials? Where do I see the greatest improvements? Okay, well, uh, advance far, far, far down my career. And about mm, 12 years ago, I got really lucky because I got to change my focus from the molecules themselves to enabling molecule teams to use new ways of running their trials. So I named that operational innovation. And I did that very intentionally because I needed to call out, this is not the innovation of science, which we dedicate tremendous resources to. This is the innovation of methods, which we rarely devote time and resources to. Like if Mm. it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, And I got to think a lot about 
how we needed to shift the approach of designing and executing trials with patients in mind. So I got to reframe, I like literally flip over my thinking from doctors are the experts, which I never really believe, um, to, gee, maybe we should ask the end users more. And what was really fascinating about that were all of the beliefs and myths that we had built up in the pharmaceutical industry about what you could and couldn't do. Mm. radically different from tech right where you're always asking the end user about their experience and the interface pharma not so much actually if we were seeking that sort of input we usually sought it through physicians and maybe from their nursing staff but actually not so much so the patient voice is so powerful and to think to not even include it when they're the ones in the study itself <laughs> But honestly, there was a very strong belief, especially amongst my European colleagues, that that was a violation of good clinical practice. Mm. Like we could get in trouble and actually be given um, a regulatory oops. So it took a long time to work through that. And part of it is framed through the differences in Europe in particular about direct to patient advertising. Right. So you're not allowed to speak to patients from pharma because there's just this wall or that was the belief. So where I've seen the most improvement is really that shift in understanding across the industry that actually patients do have a voice and need to be heard. I wouldn't say we're all the way through that journey, but I'm delighted to say that it's now much more understood and accepted and the FDA guidance continues to reinforce, we expect this of you. And the best news lately is the new requirements for diversity planning in trials with a formal plan offered to the FDA. So we're finally getting clear on who the end user is in pharma. That actually was going to be my next question, because anytime you talk about patients and study participants and that topic comes up, the next question always follows, it seems, diversity. Um, how is the research industry better addressing diversity of studies and what aspects of diversity continue to be opportunities for growth and improvement? Well, I'm sad to say the first answer is simple, like we're finally paying attention. Mm -hmm. I know that's really not acceptable. And the reason I guess that it wasn't really on our minds in pharma was because time was the currency. What do I mean by that? Speed and speed of decision-making in molecule development trumps all. And so even when we knew the epidemiology of disease looked like X, it was okay if we achieved Y in the trial as long as we got it done and mm -hmm. had quality data. Um, and actually, it's interesting that you ask, I, I have a lot of concerns about setting specific targets for uh, recruiting specific groups in trials. And it's not because I don't want the right thing to be done, it's actually because I want the right thing to be done. And I know how study teams work, think, and act, and they will meet the goal. Mm -hmm. 
So what concerns me is just setting an absolute goal numerically could lead to a situation where a person who is eligible gets denied on the basis of race. True, true. Mm-hmm. So that's no bueno as far as I'm concerned. Like there needs to be beneficence in that goal. And there's an intention without an absolute cap. Mm-hmm. That's an opinion. It's not a regulatory ruling. But I am glad that we're finally talking about it. And we understand collectively that the speed of recruitment is no longer the only metric we need to pay attention to. We also need to do a better job of reflecting the study populations to align to epidemiology. Mm-hmm. And from your perspective, how should clinical research entities be evolving to better serve patients? You know, and maybe how how might it be to better get the patient insight? from patients and participants you know what are some of the top long and short-term priorities in this area for the industry (laughs) well the first one's really simple ask them Mm. right Um, yeah (laughs) girl you're preaching my language here (laughs) ask the uh, patients (laughs) okay so that means it takes some planning and i'm working on a really interesting project right now where we are aiming to ask some people who are not going to be the patients in the trial about their thoughts about being in a trial like this one mm. and what's interesting is it re the the project we're working on right now reinforces to me you got to do that early like and i had that experience a decade ago but it's reinforced in this current day if you really want to take that time and understand and then align your design to what you hear, you'd better start at least nine months, maybe 12 before you hope to enroll patients because Mm -hmm. you might find something out that you have to really address either in the design of your study or in the execution of that design. That's So, so true. Um, again, it's that speed driver in pharma. So I commend the organization that is sponsoring the project because I'm thrilled they're doing it. And I know they're feeling the tension of getting that information and executing on time. So we're we're working on it and they're a great partner. Um, the other thing I would say is you need to show up in a way that is not transactional. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that isn't something we've been great at at pharma. Um, and I'm also a strong believer that patient advocacy groups can play a huge role. I like the balance of asking individual patients too, because sometimes the needs and perceptions of the individual are just a little bit different from those of more organized groups, they both have a very important role to play. And if we do things well, we can co-create instead of transactionally ask what would be useful. You're so right. That relational ask might be more powerful and actually you might learn more Mm -hmm. from a relational ask than a transactional type question. It's very interesting, very interesting thought. 
I'm wondering, you know, your company's vision is to really make clinical trials accessible for all patients, regardless of location uh, and geography. You know, what role does the healthcare provider community need to take in potentially helping achieve that future vision? Wow, that's so interesting. So um, yesterday I was speaking to a couple of patients about their perceptions of trials, different project. You can see there's a theme here. This is what I love to do most. And the theme that came out in these conversations yesterday was loud and clear. I might consider a research study, but I'm going to have a lot of questions and concerns. And I really want to hear about it from my own doctor, my own care team. And it's interesting, one of the individuals had actually had a phone call out of the blue about a trial for his mom. He has no idea how that individual got his phone number. He has no idea why he was approached. He did the right thing with the information, but it just led him to a whole lot of questions like, who knows about me and why are you calling me? So it's a violation of trust, even from someone who has pretty deep trust in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So I think that getting to your point, there has to be something done collectively to help physicians and healthcare providers better understand the clinical trials that are available to their patients and finding a role for them to play in those trials, which is really the mission I'm on at CureBase. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to become a principal investigator, but I have a strong belief that physicians are willing to do the right thing for patients if they can find out what that right thing is, and if we can find ways for physicians who are already highly trained and have this relationship with their participants to do what they would normally do in the course of caring for that patient. So for example, if it's, um, if it's a rheumatoid arthritis trial, I'm certain that the rheumatologist is already doing SED rates and joint counts and degrees of function with mobility. Those are standard measures that we typically use in clinical trials. How is there a way for us to make that possible to happen with the, the normal healthcare provider or the trusted healthcare provider, not just the PI? That's so true. Why go hundreds of miles to the local academic medical center? Nothing wrong with local academic medical center, but it's not so local for some patients when you right. could do the local academic center for the folks that are nearby and then the folks that are not go to their rheumatoid arthritis physician and get the, those normal tests done as well and participate. I actually kind of think it might become a hybridization of hybrid trials, if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that term. So no. Mm -hmm. Um, hybrid trials are trials where some things happen remotely and some things happen in a brick and mortar setting more traditionally. So the remote work might be done through telemedicine or you might have a nurse come to your home or your school to do some assessments. Sometimes it's even a physician. So it becomes a hybridized version of the trial. The double hybridization is what if some of the brick and mortar or remote was done with your 
your regular healthcare provider. And some of it was done with the PI. Oh, interesting. So, you know, clinical trials are experiments and there's a need for rigor in data collection and trying to minimize variability in the data set. So when there's something specific to the trial that is not part of standard of care, okay, make that part of the Principal Investigator Academic Research Center assessments. When it's something that is standard of care and really well understood and practiced across the healthcare provider network, put that in their domain. Make the data visible both ways. Mm -hmm. Now, that's complicated. I'm not going to say it's not. But with technology and training, it's possible. There also has to be a reason why for the healthcare provider and with the constraints on their time, we will have to find ways to make that easy for them to do. True. And what roles have healthcare technology now played within decentralized clinical trials? You know, apps, are, they, are apps being used to help collect data? Uh, is AI being used, biomarkers? You know, what, what types of healthcare technologies and data and analytics are most impactful for decentralized clinical trials? Um, it's sort of the Wild West, actually. And I mean that in a good way, because we've suddenly realized how many things are at our fingertips now with respect to the blend of technology and healthcare. That does have a downside we'll talk about in a sec. Um, so, for instance, I'm in three trials right now. One of them is done almost all remotely, except with an annual visit. The other is done completely in person, except for an e-diary. So they're almost like opposite. Um, the one thing that has changed a lot and is enabled through technology is that we are seeing an increase in patient-generated data as part of the clinical data set in clinical trials. And this is actually critically important because those are the measures of quality of life and patient reported outcomes that are very specific to whether or not the, not just is the drug working clinically, but do you feel better? Mm -hmm. And that I think is going to be an increasing area of focus in regulatory approvals over time. It's really sad to say that in oncology, while we've had a lot of advancements made in terms of efficacy, duration of life, or changes in tumor progression, we haven't seen the same progress in quality of life measures, even in those same studies. I'm sure those clinical trials have to be tricky. To be honest, there's with oncology, there's so many different types of cancers, the yeah. breadth of types of cancers, the breadth of types of of uh, of strength. The, you know, the the issue of how strong your cancer is or how how far advanced your cancer is. I'm sure that's really tricky. You know, in the oncology space, what do you think is needed to improve? maybe access to or the betterment of oncology decentralized clinical trials? So oncology is actually the therapeutic area I've worked in most. And Wow, that's I've the trickiest there. and the hardest. So that doesn't surprise me because you're amazing. <laughs> well, I was wow. really lucky because I got to work on a number of things that literally changed medical textbooks, like wow. literally. 
And the thing that I think we really have an opportunity to do better is include the patient voice. Think about patient and caregiver burden because Mm -hmm. it's very rare that a patient is going through this alone. Yeah. Who's managing their medications most of the time? Usually the caregiver, I mean. and uh, Or even taking them to visits. Taking them to visits. Getting them to an infusion suite. Mm -hmm. And then finding ways to use technology to support the patient through the journey while giving them optionality and support from the care team that they trust. Mm. So I'm I'm trying to paint a picture here. We want lots of optionality. We also want patients to feel supported and understand that the quality of care they're receiving is at least as good in a clinical trial as it is in regular practice. I do think there's a lot of room for improvement in understanding um, biomarkers and precision medicine and aligning who's the right fit for which medication that goes back to finding ways to help those physicians understand with this patient, their pathology, these biomarkers, that expression, this is the right trial for them. That's going to take some very sophisticated matching and some companies have been working on it. It's insufficient to drive a higher rate of clinical trial participation so far. So you need the data and then you need the access. And I think there are some great strides getting made on that. And they're enabled in part by this decentralized trial model. Wow. This is such an inspiring conversation. The patient voice is really a really powerful thing. And to think that it could have such a powerful role in advancing decentralized clinical trials is is, is really inspiring and hopeful, to be honest, hopeful that we're in the right direction um, to include that patient voice, to include that physician in being able to even take part in these trials at all and help um, is, is pretty fascinating. I'd love to move on to your personal life. Uh, You're a busy informaticist, professional, decentralized clinical trial researcher, all all these wonderful things. What are some things you do in your personal life to work your best and make a difference? Well, I try to move my body every day. Um, Somehow, some way, get outside. Uh, I am very fortunate to live in a really beautiful part of the world. So I try to get inspiration from nature and take lessons from it. In fact, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, pretty frequently, you're going to see me post these things called lessons from the beach. Mm -hmm. And they're just little things that come to me by observing what happens out in the world in a place where nature is so much more powerful and makes me feel so small. Mm. Your curiosity is inspiring. Even at the beach, you're, you're thinking of, of ways that the world can all is interconnected. It's fascinating. If you could well, give it a lot of metaphors out there, like the way so that birds work together to migrate, the way that whales work together to raise their pods and i have access to see some of those things just because of where i live so i try to think about how what they are doing can help me learn what we might do differently 
Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what are some of your personal hobbies? Are there any things that you like to do uh, as a hobby and enjoy? Um, other than going to the beach, yes. I I knit kind of compulsively. And I think that that is actually rooted in me growing up in the northeast part of Canada, where winters were long. And knitting was actually access to color in a very gray time. Mm-hmm. It was also something that everyone around me was doing because we were inside a lot. So it came with me to the West Coast. And now um, I realized that using my hands actually opens my brain in a different way to hear and process information. And it also prevents me from being on Slack while I'm listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I love to do is experience music. Again, I was a musician who turned into a scientist, but um, my son has been working on his 10,000 hours as a guitarist. He's He just turned 18. He's got more than 10,000 hours. But what was really fun about that is watching him perform and learn that process of discipline and the show must go on and experiencing live music with him with some of the bands and musicians who have inspired him. So we try to do that as much as we can and got to do something really special for his graduation from high school this year. Wow, that is awesome. Congratulations to him and congratulations to you, mom. That's awesome. Yeah, he's about to go off and become a university student. So it's going to be a big, big, interesting journey for him. That is awesome. If you could give advice to to young women or men um, getting trying to get into the type of line of work that you're in, what would that advice be? What advice are you giving your son, basically? If, I don't know if he's looking to get into that line of work, but you know, is is there any advice for folks looking into to get into healthcare that you have? I would say um, what I've told my son is first figure out what drives you because if you can work on what you're passionate and curious about, it's not going to feel like work. Mm-hmm. It will be exhausting. It will be hard, but you'll know that it has meaning and that what you're doing makes a difference, at least to you. So that's number one. Number two is really what I was saying way earlier in the conversation. Start with yes. Like when somebody suggests or makes an offer to you to do something you didn't expect, don't say no. Mm. It it might be a, can we talk about it and figure out how that would work? It doesn't have to be a yes dive in, but saying no just closes the door. And I continually coach my mentees, like, don't take yourself out of the conversation before you're in it. And I notice a lot of people do that. Like, I don't have X. I never did Y. This isn't blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you have what you need to at least put your name into the consideration. So take the chance because let's say it's something that you get really curious about, but it doesn't work out this time. You're going to learn what you need to know 
if you want to continue that path. If you never take the step of getting into the conversation, you're going to lose the opportunity to learn what you need to do to fill the gap. That is amazing wisdom. And I know our listeners are going to really be inspired by that. To finish this conversation off right, where can our listeners find you online? You mentioned LinkedIn. Uh, yes, um, I do post there from time to time. Sometimes I have blogs on the curebase.com website. Um, I don't have my own website. You can find me on Instagram if you want to see a lot of knitting under hashtag stash gem, S-T-A-S-H-J-E-M. And for those who are not knitters, stash is what we call our yarn hoard. Aha! <laughs> that is great to know. That's terrific. Now, before I forget, did you happen to bring tea with you today? I brought coffee. Ah, tell us about your mug. Um, the mug is really functional and practical, and I've used it every day since it was given to me as a gift for speaking at a conference earlier this year in Boston, which is my second favorite city in the United States. That is fantastic. What is the name of the conference? It was Magi. This was Magi East. Um, and what was really fun was I was actually coaching somebody to do their first their first professional presentation. So I get a lot of joy from seeing people step on stage and, and succeed. And having done it so often yourself, I know they learned a lot from you and really appreciated your expertise. Uh, we were on a mission just to make that individual feel successful and it worked. That is too good. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for the industry, Jane. And thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And if there's anything you want to talk about, again, just give me a ring. Would love to have you back on the show. Okay. Thank you. And, and thank you folks for joining too. Check out the Hit Like a Girl podcast website and YouTube page for more great guests like Jane today. Cheers. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you.